So I want to acknowledge and thank those who have been doing our Sunday teaching this month or so. Uh, Dave Schmidt, Kyle Johnson, Kurt Johnson, David Holzman, Rick Foster, Sid Coop. Uh, there's something to be said for, for continuity a lot of times, but there's also something to be said for mixing it up and hearing different voices and developing, developing bent strength in our teaching. And summer is the time of the year that we tend to do that. For the rest of the summer, uh, we're going to be hearing uh, again from Dave Schmidt, from Sid Coop again, uh, and Gord Sorensen, one Sunday, will be speaking here in transition. Connie Dwart, one of our missionaries, will be speaking later in August, uh, and I'll take a couple of couple more this summer. So I'm wondering if there are some of us here who might be thinking that an apology from me might be appropriate, not because I haven't been up here, but because of our teaching theme this summer, weather report. I'm thinking somebody might be connecting the dots in some funny way, saying, hmm, weather report, maybe God's thinking, you want to talk about weather? Let me show you weather, right? Sorry, no apologies, Uh, for one reason, although that is sometimes the way we think about life and God, that is not right thinking about God. It's easy to make ourselves, our whims, our needs and wants, way too much the center of our questions. Our teaching this summer has been a mix of... um, of, of talking about weather patterns that are out there, in other words, circumstances in our life that uh, influence our thinking and feeling about life and God, often way too much. Sunny days we talked about, we've talked about storms, but there's also another thing we've been emphasizing, developing an, inner ter- an internal climate, a strong heart, a sturdy, God-focused, Jesus-confident, Holy Spirit-empowered mindset that is ready for any weather pattern. A climate inside that's able to say, as Kurt Johnson uh, put it so well, there's no such thing as bad weather, only poor clothes. As I told our speakers this summer what our theme would be and asked them what they'd like to talk about, you know what most everyone wanted to talk about? Storms. The first thing that came out of just what everyone's mind, oh, storms, I'll talk about storms. Storms can be tough to go through, but they're, they're easy to talk about. Because they're, they're identifiable, they're, they're quantifiable, they're, they're definable. In Alberta skies, you can even see the edges of a storm pattern. As LaDonna and I saw yesterday as we're driving up uh, number two, we could see where it ended and where it started, how long it was going to take before we'd be in it and when it was gone. Storms are dramatic. They make a good picture. When you make it through a storm, you're a winner. And if you, even if you don't come through, you have a few scars to brag about. And you have a story. If you don't survive, you're a hero. You go out in a blaze of glory. You may have to rebuild after a storm, but everyone rallies to help. And you can do it. But there's another weather weather pattern that is just as prevalent as a storm. And has a greater negative impact in our lives than a storm. Partially because it lasts longer. It's not one we like talking about because... It's not one that makes for a dramatic story. As a matter of fact, when we're in this weather pattern, we don't want to talk at all. It doesn't make for a pretty picture because the color is sort of just gray. Gray. Long-term, gray, cloudy skies that makes everything in life look flat, feel dull, 
hopeless, boring. We sometimes talk like my neighbor did the other day when I saw him sitting on the porch in the middle of the day in his bathroom. Yeah, he says, I'm, under, I'm a bit under the weather today, right? That's how we talk about it. We talk about it in terms of weather. What happens when under the weather just doesn't quit? What happens when all we can see as we look out our window is gloomy and gray? Well, we have a weather-related term for that too, don't we? We call it seasonal affective disorder. After the skies have been gray and, and everything's been gloomy for a long time. Our outlook becomes anything but optimistic and we start going down what um, Trumper Longman and Dan Ellender in their book, uh, Cry, The Cry of the Soul, talk about a stairwell of discouragement. It begins with, with disappointment, which often includes regret, disappointment with ourselves. Maybe I should have, maybe I could have, woulda, shoulda, coulda. When someone says to me, I have no regrets, I start mumbling to myself, denial, denial, right? We all have regrets. And if we don't process them well, it can lead to sadness. Or if the condition keeps on. Sadness reaches a little deeper into our souls, a greater sense of emptiness. We become quicker to tears. Sadness as, as, as Trimper Longman and, and Dan Elder call it, is a, is a lingering taste of the truth that the world is not right, that creation is not what it was meant to be. We all live there. When we experience a significant loss, sadness can become overwhelming. And if we can't come out of it, it, be, it can become what we might call a situational depression. It begins to incapacitate us. Nothing seems to lift us out of our discouragement and sadness. It, it, it becomes more than a permanent gray cloud. It starts getting pretty dark. We are robbed of energy and even the will to fight and go on. Hope is gone. We can't enjoy life. And the floor of the valley of discouragement is despair. A total absence of hope and an overwhelming sense of powerlessness. Ever find yourself on that staircase? Some of us struggle with a, with a, a physiological internal makeup that, that makes us prone to what, what's called clinical depression or, or one of its mental health cousins. Some of us are prone to allowing ourselves to get worn down, worn out, and come to a place of weariness that a good night's rest and a week off just doesn't seem to fix. What do we do with that? Some of us are saying, enough already, you're making me depressed just talking about it. We came here for an upbeat talk. We all live there. And folks, God wants to talk about reality. And for some of us, the discouragement staircase is the reality we live in more often than we want to admit, right? I know God wants us to talk about it because he talks about it. In the part of the Bible that we, that we call the Older Testament, the pre-Jesus part of the Bible that records the, the foundational history that led to Jesus, our need for Jesus, God's plan for us in Jesus, there are three spiritual leaders of God's people that rise up above all of the rest at different points in that journey. First of all, there's Moses. The man entrusted by God to lead his people out of Egypt and to form them in an independent nation under God and lead them to the promised land. And later on, after they're organized, they're in the promised land, David 
God's appointed king who shepherded his people with a heart of integrity, the human king whose, whose line, the real king of God, Jesus, would come. They longed for all of their history for the king like David. And then the third one was a different kind of leader. He was a prophet, Elijah, the greatest of God's prophets, sent to his people after they came back to the land and and wasted that opportunity to live with and for and under God to plead with them to come back to God's plan. Now, aside from some of the daring and and dramatic, God-dependent, God-empowered risks each of these leaders took on, all three of them have one thing in common. All three of these men went went all the way to the bottom floor in this stairwell of discouragement. All three went through periods of their life where they wanted to die. This morning, we're going to look at one episode in, in Elijah's battle with discouragement and how God walks him through it. And what I'd like us to leave knowing in our hearts this morning that gray, gray, is a foundational color, a a background color that God wants to use in your life to develop you and to deepen your experience of Him and your roots into Him. Gray is not all bad if we know how to deal with it. And so I would like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, just take out your smartphone and, and download the Bible app and, uh, and, and uh, look in the index for 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. This account is not a prescription, a step-by-step recipe for how God wants to walk us through everyday experience, but it does show some patterns in, in the way God works with us when we're living under a cloud of discouragement. And I'd like us to leave this morning with five lessons from Elijah so that we can leverage our great days to allow discouraging experience to be part of God's perfect work that that he is doing in us and with us. So as you come to chapter 19, verse 1, we see the context for this this gray that descended onto Elijah. Verse 1 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with... Did you get that? Listen to it again. Ahab, the king of Israel, told Jezebel, his wife... Everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets of Baal, not not God's prophets, the prophets of Baal with the sword. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like dull and gray. This sounds a lot like thunder and lightning to me, a storm. Now, let's remind ourselves of what Elijah has just done. If you look at chapter 18, the chapter previous to that, you can just whip to that and just follow through as I'm talking. Elijah has just completed dramatically and gloriously with with literal thunder and lightning, a God-given assignment in a showdown between the God who is above all gods, between the only true God and the gods people want to worship, the gods we naturally worship, the gods that make us feel good but in the process take away from us more than they give, the gods that we get sucked into bowing down to in our daily life to try and get more out of life the view of God that we easily buy into. These prophets, the false prophets 
Elijah has had a, a dramatic encounter with him, and Elijah, well, God, through Elijah's boldness, has taken them down in a dramatic showdown. Boom, they're gone. After it's all over, a sudden storm comes onto the, onto the horizon, and, and once again, God gives Elijah unusual strength, and, and Elijah makes it back to the city on foot faster than those who had chariots and horses. This is, this is powerful. This is empowered stuff. This is what you tell stories about. But now, Ahab, the king, told everything, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets. Jezebel is not only Ahab's wife. Jezebel was not a God follower. Jezebel was the, the token political leader of all of these prophets. Of King Ahab, who's a wuss, who had compromised his own leadership of God's people by marrying this woman who was opposed to God, the woman whose prophets God through Elijah had just taken down. Well, Elijah has just poked the bear. Verse 2. So, Eli, uh, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And Elijah, emboldened by this huge win, empowered by the way God has been with him and proved to him that everything that stands against him will falter, looks at this messenger and says, Let me at her. Take me to Jezebel and let her tell me that to my face. Does she really want another showdown with the God of all gods? Make my day. Isn't that what we're set up to expect? Isn't that what's supposed to happen, how the story should go? There's nothing in this story to prepare us for the next line. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for Afraid? Well, it's actually literally a word that means Elijah saw. He saw what was about to happen. He took it all in. He wasn't coming home the winner he thought he was, that God's people would rather shoot the messenger than turn to God. And Elijah runs for life. When he came to Beersheba, verse 3, in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestor. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. What is with that? Elijah, you're the man. Can't you see how this is what God has set you up for? That last win. It was only game one in a series. We won game one. We're in the driver's seat. God has set you up for this. What's going on? That, that phrase in there, I'm no better than my ancestors. It, that's not, my, Elijah's not making a moral judgment on himself. Where are his ancestors? Dead. What he's saying is, my life's over anyway. I'm useless. I'm no good anymore. God, just take me. 
I'm as good as dead already. Let me die right here rather than suffering the public humiliation, the shame of being captured and taken by that wicked woman. God, it it would be better. It would be less humiliating for you if you let me die right here rather than your reputation being taken down by Jezebel. Isn't it amazing how discouragement can, can, can confuse our thinking? It skews it, doesn't it? And what does God do? Does he say to Elijah, Elijah, snap out of it. Get back on the horse and ride. No, 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 Elijah, you don't even need a horse, remember? You ran faster than horses. You don't even need weapons. Why didn't God say like he would say later through Isaiah, the prophet, no weapon forged against you will stand. You will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication from me. Why doesn't God say that? What does God do? Middle of verse 5. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down. Let's pause right there and look at two lessons from Elijah's experience. Actually, no, let's just continue another verse. Uh, Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said once again, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. So let's pause there and and, uh, take a look at at the first two lessons from, from Elijah's experience regarding God and gray. Number one, discouragement is a natural part of normal life experience. It's a predictable part of our cycle of experience in life. It's not, at least initially, it's not good or bad. It's not negative or positive, right or wrong. It just is. And we need to expect it. And there's, there's one time when, when we are very, very vulnerable to discouragement. And, and Elijah's experience shows it. When did that discouragement come? It's easy to say, like Elijah did, it's easy to say that his discouragement came when Jezebel threatens him, threatens to kill him. Well, that was the occasion for it. But remember the bigger picture. It came after a huge win, a high After the high of winning over the prophets of Baal, there was another burst of energy after that to run with the chariot all the way back to the city. Oh yes, God gave him supernatural energy. I'm not trying to explain this away psychologically, but what God granted him to experience, both the win and the burst of energy, did have physiological effects and psychological elements to them. They happened to and they happened with Elijah's body. And what happens after a high? What goes up will come down. It just happens. And the higher the high, the the lower the low. To write this off as simply psychological is wrong, but it is also simplistic to write this off as simply a spiritual battle. Do you know how we know that from the text of the story? We know it by the way God treats Elijah. Elijah. What does he do? He gives him some food and he gives him some time to rest. Two times 
He slept. God treats this issue as if at least a part of it was a natural consequence of the high that he allowed him to experience. Okay? Now, now notice what God does not say to Elijah. He does not say, oh, Elijah, you, you're working too hard. You've got to learn how to not work so hard. You shouldn't have worked so hard. Elijah didn't do the wrong thing. But even the right thing has physiological consequences and emotional side effects. It just does. When our, our son was in his uh, later elementary and early junior high years, um, on, on, uh, on Mondays, which was my day off, when he came home from school, I'd often have some projects I wanted him to do or I wanted to work with him on. And, and so he'd come and I'd say, okay, you know, this is what we're going to do. Uh, and and he, he went through this period of time where, where he just was grumpy and snappy and, and, uh, and I, I would try to redirect his mental orientation by saying, hey, Mike, just snap out of it, man. We're going to do this together. Didn't work. What did LaDonna do? She said, Mike, you're hungry. Why don't you have a bite to eat before you guys take that on? That's, what God, that's God's first treatment with Elijah. Let's get some food into you, then go back to sleep. It was Elijah that actually over-spiritualized the situation. Can you see that? Part of his over-spiritualizing was his expectation that everything should continue to just be up all the time. There are downs in life that are natural, and sometimes they're a natural result of a win that God allows us to experience. And so, first of all, would you get it into your heart that emotional downs are not necessarily spiritual failures or they're not failures of God to grant us peaceful or, or, or happy emotions. Sometimes they start simply as a natural response to, to times of intensity, to, to, to the long-term result of carrying a heavy backpack. As uh, we said earlier, uh, and we're going to see later, several people got baptized today. And, and sometimes baptism is a high, and, and there's a down that follows that. The, the mundane, the, the regular life goes on. It, it's, and, and sometimes we feel like, oh, that was a fake. No, it wasn't. You're just experiencing the down of a natural high. So what do I do about it? Besides understanding it and, where, and, and realizing it. Well, um, I, I can, I, when I understand that, I can better prepare for those, uh, and the number one way that, that, that I know to prepare for them is, is to, it, to be able to stop that cycle earlier is to, is to create some, some healthy rhythms in life. There's daily rhythms, there's weekly rhythms, and, and there's an annual rhythm. The, the daily rhythms, we've we, we got to build a structure to our day that includes a period for recharging, and, and, and our big thing... We often say, well, you know, I, I can't do it. That doesn't work for me. Yes, it does. You can get ahead of the curve on most things. Your day is much more predictable than you think it is. Figure it out. Work with it. Most of the stuff that comes at us, we can expect, and we, and we can get ahead of it and be ready for it. And, and sometimes simply getting ahead of it and being prepared for it, we can endure a lot for a period of time. Then there's a weekly rhythm, a seven-day rhythm that God gives us, a gift of being able to take a Sabbath day, a time to, to recharge and rest and also come and recharge our, our hearts and minds as we worship together, to be together with God's people, experiencing God's presence and listening to God's word. 
We got, we got to build that into our week. And then there's also, uh, for those of us who are, are, are leaders particularly, the, the more I, I've gone on in a leadership role is recognizing there needs to be an annual rhythm at well. The harder you charge, the more important it is to you plan for a period of rest. It's one of the reasons I, I, do, I don't preach much in the summertime. It's part of my annual rhythm. And when you live by a rhythm, what happens is there's, there's, there's enough gas in your tank to, to, to take the, the peaks and the valleys that, that sometimes come as surprises. So let's move on. Verse 8. Something's not working here, folks. Uh, verse 8. So he got up and he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days, 40 nights, until he reached Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Okay, God has allowed Elijah to rest, to have nourishment, and he's brought him back to that place of the central defining encounter of God with his people, Mount Sinai. And there God meets Elijah. He takes Elijah and meets Elijah for the next stage in, in walking and working with him through this experience. Um, and uh, and he's brought him back. And as we read the dialogue between God and Elijah, he's, he's dealt with his body, and now it's time to deal with his head and his heart. See if you can see some of the ways in which Elijah has not yet used his physical strength that God gives him to come back to where he was. Where is Elijah's focus as we begin the middle of verse 9? The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and, brought your, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Can you see anything significant about Elijah's thinking? There's a lot of I going on there. I've been a good guy. This shouldn't be happening to me. I've been doing the right thing and now you're letting me down. Has God let him down? No. There's another threat to his life, but God's preserved him from every threat so far. I am the only one left. Is that true? I can, ju I can just hear Elijah say it if God confronts him on that. What will Elijah say? Well, that's my experience. That's my reality, right? And so, lesson number two in this journey is that discouragement makes us become much more self-focused, self-referenced. Okay, discouragement makes us become way more self-focused, self-referenced, self-absorbed than we realize and more than is good for us. You know, most of the time, we don't even realize how self-focused we are. LaDonna, LaDonna and I spent almost three weeks tootling around uh, the Atlantic provinces last month, just enjoying them and enjoying each other. No agenda other than eating seafood every single day. We did it. We would stop wherever we could to, to catch an image with our iPhone, and, and, and we stopped at one place so I could take a picture, uh, and actually we stopped in a graveyard. I wasn't taking a picture of the graveyard, but I, I had to walk, and, and there was something that I wanted to take a picture of. And, and LaDonna stayed in the car, and she was just looking out the window, and then she started reading the lettering on the tombstones. And 
When I got back in, she said, look at that tombstone over there. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm, I'm trying to see if it's actually saying what I think it's saying. And so I read it. And um, read it. My mother, E-R-D. No name, just initials. E-R-D. 1845 to 1920. Erected by her son, William Dean. It's a tombstone by which to remember his mother. And she doesn't even get named. He makes sure that the name that's remembered is his name. LaDonna <laughs> and I had some, some fun creating scenarios as to what must have happened there. Maybe this was like mother, like son. She'd been stingy all her life and made herself the center of her attention, spent her money on herself, and in her will, she had given her money away to causes that, uh, that would have her name on them. And she prescribed the size of the tombstone that she would have, along with designating money in the will to pay for it. And her one son was so looking forward to his inheritance, he was so ticked that she gave it all away, he followed the letter of the log, gave her her tombstone to make sure he was the one whose name was on it. The only thing he could control. Okay, maybe. Maybe she had more than one son. And her kids disagreed what to do to, re to remember her after she died. One son wanted to use some of the inheritance for a tombstone. But he was outvoted. So, he was the responsible son. He's going to pay for the tombstone himself. A tombstone that actually was literally right on the edge of the driveway into the church that his siblings would see every Sunday that they would be reminded that he was the responsible son. I don't know. You see, sometimes when we do right things and don't get the acknowledgement we think we should, in our discouragement, we become self-absorbed and, and that's actually what we'll be reminded. There's something else going on here. See if you can pick it up as, as we read, beginning in verse 11. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. If you know that this is Mount Sinai, Moses, David, Elijah are sort of the three-point leaders, and you know the story, you can already see what's happening here. There's a lot of time we don't have, or a lot of stuff we don't have time to unpack, but basically what God is doing with Elijah on this mountain is, is he's allowing him to think that, that he's another moment. Or he's telling him, this is what you think you are. There's comparison between Moses and Elijah here. And then he's going to give Elijah a Moses kind of experience where God and he's going to set Elijah up for another expectation. But God was not in either. And after the fire came a gentleman. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his... Commentators on this passage agree that God is setting Elijah up for a Moses experience to show that Elijah is not like. God works with Elijah differently than Moses. And when God shows up, God is there. But it's not in the dramatic. I'm the same God as I was with Moses, but I'm with you. Then I work with Moses. 
And that's the lesson. Accelerates our journeys of encouragement. Comparison. Comparing my story to other stories is what keeps us from stopping going down that slide. To use the analogy we talked about several months ago, Moses was Elijah's big brother. Unless he could lead like Moses, unless God dealt with him like he dealt with Moses, he was a nobody. Comparison cripples us. Who's your big brother? Who is it whose approval you have to have? And unless you get it, you're a failure. The one you're comparing yourself to, and unless your achievements match theirs, you're a nobody. Folks, that's what's killing us. Can you see how comparison is killing you? I'm not treated everyone like everyone else or like somebody else, and so therefore I'm unimportant. It kills us in our families. It kills us in our work. It kills us in our friendship circles. It kills us in the church. And it makes us a negative influence in all of those environments. Do you see the irony here? We want to be treated as unique, but when God treats us as unique, we start comparing. Any way comparison is taking you out, you can ream off the list of what you're doing. You've got that memorized and probably magnified. And you can rattle off the list of what you're not getting from God or your environment, and it's probably magnified too. But in both lists, you're comparing with you at the center, and it's killing you, and it's hurting your environment. And so, now that Elijah knows he's in God's presence, one more time, God speaks. But God doesn't say anything new. He comes back to the same question. Elijah, what are you doing here? What should Elijah have said? Well, I'm I'm here because you've taken me here, right? I'm here because you've not abandoned me. You've allowed me to be restored by you and with you. I'm here because I realize that although I'm not Moses, you still must have something for me to do in this time, in this place. Lord, I'm ready. But Elijah is stuck. He's stuck in his self-absorption. He has not changed his line one bit. Verse 14. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. (laughs) Stuck. He hasn't changed his line one bit, even after God met him in a powerful way. You see, when we get stuck in our self-absorption, defining how it is that we need to experience God with some very self-referenced expectations, very often we can't see what God is doing, what He is providing, what He is offering. We refuse to budge. And what does God do? Well, God's done catering to Elijah. God has restored his strength physically. And God knows Elijah is just in a self-reference cycle that no experience with him will fix. And God says to Elijah, verse 15, Elijah, it's time to get up and go back the way you came. I'm not going to give you a new situation. I'm not going to give you a new environment. Go back to the point you ran away. And here's lesson number four. The time to get up and get back in the game is often way sooner. We will never think we're ready. Elijah doesn't think he's ready yet, but God knows that Elijah will never think he's ready. There comes a time to get back into it, and it's often sooner than we think. You'll never be unscared 
without taking it on. The longer you wait to take it on, the more scared you'll be. You'll never be psychologically prepared without doing it. This is a great time to be processing this because now is the time some of us need to consider a way we might need to step up and get involved in a new cycle of our church year. As you hear about some of the ways you can become involved, as you think through uh, some of the, the, even making church attendance a priority, uh, maybe, maybe you need to just say yes, tell somebody that you're going to do it, and hold yourself accountable, and, and get back in the game. And what does God tell Elijah to do when he says, get up and go? He tells him, if you look through the rest of the chapter, he tells him to appoint certain people in certain positions, and specifically a king, somebody to take his place when the time is really up, Elijah, or Elisha, a, a, a teammate that's going to take, take over from him. And, and, and in the process, in the process, God confronts one of the lines of Elijah's self-referenced thinking. You said you were the only one? Well, then I'll point out to you several people who are ready to work with you because, verse 18, I reserve 7,000 people in Israel all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah, you're not alone. There are more people who are ready to work with you than you realize, so get back on the horse. Do what I've called you to do, not for you, but for me. You're wasting good time and disappointing a lot of people who are waiting for someone to step up and live with them, for them, and, and, and guide them into... I don't know about you, but... I very rarely feel I am ready for, for the fall new year to come on. I just don't. I'm so thankful there's a calendar date that just makes it, got to do it. I'm trying as best I can to live with his rhythm, rhythm for me. The rest is up to him as I give myself to going at it each year. I'd like you to join us together again this year to do that. Maybe step up in a new way. As I was thinking about today and what, what this experience of Elijah teaches us, I thought back to that old, well, not so old, actually. It was composed, I think, in the 1960s, that, that Footprints poem. Remember that? Where a guy sees his life journey as footprints in the sand. Lots of times there were two sets of footprints side by side, but then he realized it's at the most difficult times of life that there's only one set of footprints, and it bothers him, and he wonders if God abandoned him during those times, and and God replied, my son, my precious child, I love you. I would never leave you during your times of trial and suffering when you see only one set of footprints. Perhaps that's what some of us need to hear. This. But as I was taking in all of what God is saying to Elijah and, and realizing how God has worked with me, and me I'm wondering if, if that version of footprints might be a little bit too sappy, a little bit too cheesy, and I'm wondering if it's only one side of the coin. I'm wondering if another version of the Footprints poem that I came across this week isn't what some of us need to hear this from God through a lot. So, Footprints Revisited. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there were seen, the footprints of my precious Lord. But mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared. I asked the Lord, what have we here? These prints are large and round and neat. But, but Lord, they're too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. 
I challenged you to walk in faith. You disobeyed. So I got tired. I got fed up. And there, I dropped you on your butt. Because in life, there comes a time when one must move and one must climb back on the horse and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. So, what are you leaving in the sand today? Butt prints? What will it take for, for, for you to, to get up? Who do you need to join you in this journey of getting up, walking by faith in the one who will not leave you and making his name in our community? I want to leave footprints. How about you? You? Colton, over to you.